So with that, you embrace that you were lost in something because you're human, that happens. You don't have to beat yourself up. You let it go. Come back to the breath. Then you again try and stop thinking. And then act is, again, just coming back to the breath because it's, it's uh, zazen is no action. It's non-doing. You're actively not doing something. So the thing to do in terms of meditation practice is to not do anything. Consciousness. The notion of the self. Personality structure. Transactional analysis. Symbiosis. Zen Buddhism. Teacher-student. Relationships. Training yourself in how to think. To subvert is to undermine the existing system of inscribed power and authority. What's happening in the digital space. The virtual world. Much of us live in a hyper-stimulated present where language itself has become the info currency in the sequence of corporate capitalism. The injunction of the virtual world is... The gatekeepers of our speech and written word are global tech monopolies. We cannot transcend or go beyond our lack through craving. What are we going to do? How are we going to live our life? The subversive therapist is about what the virtual world is doing to us and what we can do about it. Welcome to the subversive therapist. I'm your host, Andrew Archer. Thanks for listening. I want to start by reading and then responding to an email I received. Uh, Brian from St. Anthony, Minnesota writes, you've commented on how meditation is easy because you basically sit and do nothing and also that it takes a community. I'm reminded of my brother who told me years ago when I asked him if he meditated, quote, I tried, but I can't sit still like that and not think. I struggled for years, even took a couple meditation classes that were very difficult for me and felt for a long time that there was no way I could sit with my crazy self. I guess I agree that meditation is simple, but that doesn't mean it is easier that people will know where to go or who to seek out or how to actually start. So that's a great point, and I think I can comment on that in a couple different ways. So my training in meditation is from a Zen Buddhist orientation. and. Like a lot of things in Zen, there's very little instruction. So when it comes to uh, formal meditation practice, which is cross-legged, seated on the floor uh, with a cushion, they basically say, you know, sit down and try it. You know, the, the sort of mythology of the Buddha is that he, he never promised that it would do anything or it would work. He had ideas about meditation and spiritual practice that he basically offered to people, uh, and he said, figure it out for yourself. You know, see what happens when you do this. So when it comes to meditation, we can talk about kind of the different types and different reasons that you would do it. Zen meditation is a concentration practice. Uh, Zen is a Japanese word. It it means meditation, Um, just like chan is a Chinese word that means meditation. So Zen Buddhism The practice is called Zazen. Zen meaning just, and Za meaning sitting. So just sitting is the literal meaning of Zazen, or just, you know, contemplative uh, meditation practice. And, you know, there's no required equipment for this. You certainly don't need a Headspace app or guided meditations from YouTube or other places, the Calm app. All you need is a place that is relatively quiet. And if it's not quiet, you know, you could put 
headphones in, noise-canceling headphones, things like that. But it doesn't actually have to be silent. Ideally, you would sit outside in nature if you can. So a relatively secluded place. I'll sit on my deck in the backyard occasionally. And you want something that's comfortable to sit on. If you're sitting on a chair, you're just going to sit towards the front of the chair. You're not using the backrest unless you have some physical limitations. And the reason for that is that you're holding yourself upright. Just like the iconography of Buddha statues, you know, there's an upright, noble posture. And you're taught in Zen that you're taking the seat of the Buddha so that your Buddha uh, himself, when you're practicing meditation, oh, now what exactly does that mean? <laughs> uh, meditation is about uh, merging or collapsing dualistic thinking. And we talked a lot about the parent ego state in series one, you know, this idea that things can be good or bad, black or white, you know, it's, it's adjectives like loud and quiet. These don't exist uh, in reality. Those are uh, descriptions of how we think reality is. Something that's really loud to one person could seem really quiet to another person. So when you're sitting zazen, you're on a cushion and a mat on the floor. This is a classical form to it. You're bringing one of your feet up on to the calf of your other foot. So it's like when I sit with the preschool kids, we say crisscross applesauce on the floor. But with a cushion, it holds you upright so that you can get your knees to actually touch the floor once you have your legs in what's called quarter lotus position. For example, the left foot is resting on top of the right calf, and everything is vertical um, with your spine. So once you have a posture, and this could be in a chair, you're just sitting still and upright, then you're bringing all of your attention and focus to your breathing itself, which your breathing is automated. You don't have to think about your breathing. And so you bring your attention to the breath to notice how challenging it is to stay with the breath. Brian mentioned the comment from his brother saying he couldn't you know, stop himself from thinking. The brain produces thoughts. Uh, that's, that's the function of that organ. But the other thing about the brain that Byrne talked about is that it's the organ of waiting. So with meditation practice, you're sitting and waiting, and you're regulating your energy in a very uh, efficient, effective way. So back to the form. You know, you're sitting in the cross-legged quarter lotus position, and I'm sure you can find information or images online to see what this looks like. And then with your hands. What I say to uh, preschool kids is your right hand and your left hand are friends. So your right hand sits right down in your lap, basically your crotch. And um, the back side of the hand is down. And the left hand, its buddy, lays right on top of it. So the back of the hand into the palm of the right hand. And then we bring the thumbs together so it makes um, a circle. In your, in your hands, thumbs are come together, and we say they kiss. And we often make a, you know, a smooch noise or something, and the kids think that's just totally hilarious because you can't talk, you know, any sexy talk uh, in school. 
getting all kinds of trouble for that. So we say the thumbs kiss. So right hand down, left hand down, thumbs kiss. Now when your hands are held in that way, and for example, your eyes are closed, uh, your legs are also collapsed. There's no right and left. It's very difficult to discern where the right begins and where the left ends when um, you're sitting. So it's representative of this collapsing of dualistic thinking. Uh, Suzuki Roshi talked about, you know, uh, the left being practice and the right being wisdom. But in, in general, what Zazen is about is, you know, eliminating this, this dualism. In the famous Xinxing Ming, poem which translates to trust in mind says the distinction uh the distinction between good and evil is the primal disease of the mind so with meditation practice you're letting go of the parent ego states um kind of automatic or habitual tendency to put things into categories of good or bad i like this i don't like that you know, tie it to the virtual world, you're getting all the good things you want and all the bad things you don't want um, don't come up in your feeds. They don't get oriented towards you. So this is what a, a filter bubble and echo chamber um, amounts to. So with Zazen, you're just sitting. and You're trying to stay with the breath, but it's impossible because uh, you'll have thoughts come up. And they'll come up as pictures from the child ego state, images memories, fantasies, as opposed to the adult and the parent would be more injunctions, directives, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. You know, you're not doing this right. You're not meditating perfectly. You're thinking too much, etc. So the aspiration in a way with meditation is to stop thinking, which is impossible to do, but you do it anyway. And you do over time, experience sort of gaps in, in thinking. I imagine most people experience reality as a kind of um, ticker feed, you know, of information going across your mind, like on the news when they have stuff going across the bottom of the screen, is that you're always thinking, you're always thinking. And so with this practice, what you're doing is you're interrupting thinking. So you're sitting there in this still, upright posture, Eyes can be opened, eyes can be closed, and you're noticing what state of mind you're in. And when you're in the adult state, you can focus on the breath, which is inside your body, but it's also outside your body, this constant cycle. And you're staying with that cycle, not necessarily manipulating it, but you're trying to breathe from way down in your belly, the lower part of your body. And as soon as you lose focus of that, you'll also notice that you don't hear any sounds in the room. Uh, in my office, there's a clock that ticks, and there's a fan in the room, so you can hear that. But when you get stuck inside your head, all that external stuff goes away. So you're attempting to stay in reality or reality testing, which is the basic function of the adult state choice and what you pay attention to, versus getting pulled into your own head, so to speak, like the child ego state, fantasizing. Which is not necessarily a problem. A lot of meditations are about going inside and shutting out the external world, which can be relaxing. And Zazen is about um, achieving enlightenment 
or in Japanese it's Satori or Nirvana, which Nirvana actually means uh, cooling off. It's, uh, it's described as like when a flame goes out. You know, it's this cooling effect, extinguishing suffering in, in a sense. And it's dramatic. It's, it's, um, it's like when the light changes, you can all of a sudden see your reflection in the water. It doesn't subtly happen. Uh, it happens very quickly. Oftentimes enlightenment is described as when the, the bottom of a bucket of water falls out. It's, it's an immediate kind of experience, and the person is um, forever affected by that uh, enlightenment experience. So that is the aim, is to wake up, to raise conscious awareness of experience, to, to actualize what they call emptiness in, in Zen Buddhism, is the, the uh, potentiality for thinking about anything and everything, or not thinking at all. So practically speaking, what you're doing with meditation is you're constantly failing. You try and stop your thinking, but you start thinking. So the, the strategy is to catch yourself when you start thinking about something and you interrupt it. So for example, if I'm sitting in meditation and I have a thought about eggs, you know, that could go in a lot of directions. It could go into childhood development or, you know, um, breeding chickens or whatever, but let's say it's associated with groceries. I think about eggs, and then I think about milk and bread, and I can create a story about when I'm going to go to the grocery store and how I need this, and I hope I don't forget that, and why don't I make a list, and I always forget this thing, or should I go to Hy-Vee or Cub Food? You know, it becomes a huge, massive, um, content-filled kind of uh, fantasy. And so with meditation practice, using that example, is when eggs come up in your mind, you let it go. You come back to the breath. It floats away. Then eggs come up again. And then milk or bread or whatever. You're letting it go and you keep coming back to the breath. And I think with contemplative practices, what happens over time is you come to understand that you actually don't need to think about just about anything. Especially if you have people in your life that can do some of the thinking for you that you're consciously aware of. They'll help you think about things. And so most of our thinking is just to kind of entertain ourselves. And we think it's so important, of course, in the digital space, our thoughts and our feelings are so important, share everything, blah, blah, blah. But as we've talked about, these computer-mediated algorithms could give a flying f- about what we think and feel. All they're interested in is our behavioral data so they can predict the things we want, what we're going to buy next, where we're going to go, restaurants, etc. Actually, the ideas in our head are completely irrelevant. Um, it's just pattern recognition of different words we use, places we go, etc. Anyways, so in a way we can learn from the algorithm that our thoughts are really actually not that important, especially when you think about the illusions and delusions in the personality structure that we talked about that contaminate reality, things like that we're autonomous or self-determined, that we're separate from everyone else. So. In a nutshell here, meditation practice is listening. You're listening to what's coming up in your mind and really not giving any f**ks about what that is because you're letting it go. What I've taught the preschool kids is the mnemonic ELSA, which represents the, the four truths or four 
tasks is what Stephen Batchelor refers to them as. Um, this is kind of the famous teaching of the Buddha, and he and Batchelor has simplified them in a secular way. So the first noble truth or task is um, that we all suffer because we're self-aware. We realize that we're going to die. We have, you know, subjectivity as we make ourselves into an object that we suffer because of that in a way that's arguably different than maybe a cat or a dog or a bird and how they suffer. And so the task is to embrace that, that as long as you're alive, which is good, you're going to suffer. When you're dead, you're not going to suffer anymore. And so it gets at this idea of birth and death. It's the first noble truth. Is in Zen, it's just one transition. There isn't a birth and then you're the same person across the lifespan and then that same person dies. Like everything else, we're interdependent, everything is co-emergent, and so uh, it's just a transition. Everything is, is contingent upon everything else. So we have embrace. The second is letting go. How do you let go? Well, you notice that there's certain patterns to your behavior or your thinking that keep coming up over and over again. Uh, samsara, I think is the word for that, the realm of, of, of kind of suffering. And so, again, this, this mnemonic is Elsa, which the kids all know the movie Frozen and the main character Elsa, so it's very easy and they're starting to learn how to read and write. Uh, but the L is letting go and you basically give up this kind of game of trying to reify yourself. You let go of the patterns and you focus on, on relationships. So embrace, let go, and in the practical sense of meditation, of thought comes up, you let it go. So the letting go, letting go of the attachment to what you want, for example, in terms of craving, you let that go. Then you, you have a pattern to stop this. You develop new ways of being. These are ethically driven. But in the, in the realm of meditation, you let go by stopping what you're doing. So you're caught up in a fantasy or you're, I'm planning my grocery list. You just stop. Uh, and so you, you're not trying to build up the ego, build up your persona. You're actually looking at all the places where you're attached to certain things, ways of being, and you're giving up all those patterns to focus your attention on relationality, how you are with people. How do you wake other people up? How do you help them to experience um, new ways of seeing the world, new frames of reference, worldviews, etc.? So you stop. Once you've understood the patterns, you understand there's a cycle to the solutions, things you do. So this is all self-study in a way. Uh, but with meditation, you stop the thinking, and then the fourth is act. How are you going to live? This was kind of a, a mantra in the first series is like, are we going to live in this symbiotic relationship with the virtual world? With the four noble truths or the four tasks, to act is to follow uh, the Buddhist eightfold path, is what it's called, which is an ethical framework. It's not like the Ten Commandments where it's written in stone on what you're supposed to do. It's suggestions for how to look at, you know, craving, how to look at greed, aversion, ill will, 
um, delusion, etc. And so there's these different arms to that path. It's eight. Uh, right understanding, right speech, right motivation, right concentration, right effort, etc. There's eight of them total. So, but when you take that that framework and just apply it to meditation, okay, I had a thought about something, I was lost, embrace it, this happens, you don't have to beat yourself up, oh, I can't think, I can't stop thinking. That was what um, Brian's brother was caught up in. No, you, how do you stop thinking? Well, you quit trying to stop thinking. <laughs> you know, it's like if, if you have a muddy glass of water that's all shook up, you got, you know, it's, you can't see through it, it's, uh, you know, blurred, etc. But if you just leave the glass of water there for a period of time, all the mud settles to the bottom. So that's the, the metaphor for meditation practice. If you sit long enough, then everything will settle all by itself. You don't have to fight, fight for the mind to stop thinking. So with that, you embrace that you were lost in something because you're human, that happens. You don't have to beat yourself up. You let it go. Come back to the breath. Then you again try and stop thinking. And then act is, again, just coming back to the breath. Because it's, it's, zazen is no action. It's non-doing. You're actively not doing something. So the thing to do, in terms of meditation practice, is to not do anything. If this sounds paradoxical and doesn't make sense, <laughs> that's the kind of enigmatic nature of Zen, um, filled with these different kind of polarities and, and enigmatic responses by people, koan, maybe it would be something we talk about. So again, practically speaking, in response to Brian, what I would do would be to buy a cushion, a zafu is what it's called, in a mat if you can afford it, set it up somewhere, outside is ideal, sit in the quarter lotus posture, don't have any expectations, just sit there and try and hold that position. What I tell my clients when I'm training them through uh, a kind of Zen psychoanalysis in psychotherapy is to not evaluate how the process is going. And if you have to, if you must evaluate or assess what you're doing, do it from the perspective of a fly on the wall. The fly on the wall would just see whether you're moving or you're not moving. And so if you can sit for five minutes without moving, that's a start. Then you up the number of minutes to 10 minutes, to 15 minutes. But there isn't a prohibition about movement because everything in Buddhism is a middle path. So it doesn't say you can't move, and it doesn't say you should just move around whenever you feel like it. The idea is to notice the conditioning. So conditioning could be you have to do this perfectly and you can't move. Well, that's going to be a problem because eventually you're going to get pain in your leg or an itch or something that's really just going to distract you. So it's an aspirational kind of path. You're going to attempt to sit and not think. It ain't going to happen, but you're also going to attempt to sit and not move. Not going to happen either. Uh, it's this middle way. So do you, do you scratch an itch and then tell yourself that you're a complete failure, idiot, whatever? That would be wrong. Do you sit through an itch so much so that you start sweating and you're angry and pissed off just because you're trying to prove a point to yourself? That's no good either. So it's this middle path, and again, though that duality, that dichotomy, is what you're trying to let go of, letting go of the parent ego state. I mean, I'm reading a lot about the treatment 
for schizophrenics from the 1970s when they were using transactional analysis. And they basically removed the parent ego state from the patients by having them go back to being little. Regression therapy is what it's called. And so they incorporate a new parent ego state, which is basically a new worldview, um, a type of moralizing, which there's certainly critiques of them doing it that way, but they had tremendous success. From my point of view, we all need to actively reincorporate new parent ego state ideas, essentially uh, yin energy, which is nurturing, self-effacing. It's a receptive kind of energy versus the yan, which is this hyper-masculine, egocentric, you know, very domineering uh, type of energy form. Uh, Zen can be the training ground for that new uh, parent ego state because when you're sitting, you're going to hear that parent loud and clear. It's going to come across as critical of you. Uh, It's going to beat you up for even trying to do something new like this. And all of that stuff will be to keep you from practicing. And there's lots of neuroscience research about why to sort of practice and you can concentrate better and anxiety and mood and blah, blah, blah. I don't know if any of that stuff is true. I certainly am aware of the research on the brain and how it, uh, neuroplasticity, you know, everything you're learning is constantly changing the physical contours of your brain, which is pretty spectacular to think about that actually you're thinking, your sort of software is affecting the hardware of the brain, but the two things aren't really separate. You know, it's not like a computer that has a hard drive and then there's separate software. It's just one thing. And so change the brain really is what it is. We, in Western culture, you separate mind and body. In most Eastern philosophies, it's mind-body. It's the same thing. Uh, it's just talking about sort of different categories or different aspects, just like you can talk about your left arm and your right arm, but they're not two separate things, right? They're connected to your whole body. So I feel like I'm going on and on about really nothing <laughs> at all. Uh, the short version about uh, Brian's question is to start practicing not doing anything. And, and not doing anything doesn't equate to scrolling through Instagram. It means destimulating. So you're just sitting with yourself. It's a kind of self-symbiosis is what Zen meditation practice is about. And as soon as you get the hang of it, then you introduce it to somebody else. You invite them to practice with you. And then all of a sudden you got a, what they call a Sangha in Buddhism, which is a, a Zen community, people interested in enlightenment and Buddhist practice and ethical study. And I think that, you know, is really what we're needing in terms of a therapeutic to this hyper-individualistic culture that's only accelerated online. And if there's a bridge, in a way, between at least what's presented as right and left politically, it is going to be through spirituality. And I don't mean religion necessarily, but the people on each side of the spectrum politically are interested in meaning-making, in community, camaraderie, you know, uh, egalitarianism. So this is a kind of unifying thing. And if, if I'm a test, you know, a pilot example of that, 
the vast majority of my clients are not the you know sort of new age granola crunching hippies if that's kind of you know stereotype of uh you know people that get into yoga and meditation blah blah these are people with conservative values largely farming communities you know no, no exposure to zen before very little exposure to psychotherapy certainly not psychoanalysis and because it works for them they do it and they like it and they keep coming back to it so i'm not going to sit here and and tell you all these benefits from it i'm going to suggest that you practice and thank you brian uh, for the question Uh, it's great to be able to kind of respond to this but i guess i would just lastly say it's a failure to go into meditation with a goal I mean, certainly there's practical things like if you set a timer for 10 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever. But this is really looking at how much we try and make something good and bad, or this is a goal for me, or et cetera. Meditation practice is preparing you for how to be in the world. And then you're meditating all the time. There's just formal practice and non-formal meditation practice. But if, if you need a simple distinction, you know, prayer is talking. Meditation is listening. Prayer is active. Uh, meditation is passive in a way that you're not actually moving. You're, you're not using much energy. But it's that way of being, that sort of yin, um, that we can bring to encounters when we meet people, rather than this, this notion in our culture that's so pervasive, it's so inscribed, that we have this personality on the inside that we bring. It's static, solid, separate self. You bring it to the encounter, and this is me, versus you sit back and you notice this other person, how much they're like you, and then you respond in an appropriate way. And most of the response is curiosity and listening to what they're saying. You're you're building empathy and compassion for that person. You're seeing them as the Buddha himself. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Thank you for listening. Had a lot of fun with the first series. This is The Subversive Therapist. I'm Andrew Archer. Take care.